Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8, we're, we're going to begin the, the, the first major unit of the book of Proverbs here this morning. Uh, we'll, we'll, if, if the Lord allows, we'll get from verse 8 to verse 19 of Proverbs chapter 1, what I'm calling the associations of wisdom. The associations of wisdom. Now, just by way of reminder, we've, we're, what, this is week four, I believe, in our study of the book of Proverbs. And what we have spent our time in so far is that first paragraph, Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7, serves as the introduction of the book. It gives us, uh, it gives to the reader, that is us as the audience, it gives us a clear-cut purpose of the book, namely to impart wisdom. Recall there are 12 different synonyms for wisdom that we talked about last time, and just all the, uh, that are, all those synonyms are crowded into those first six verses, and that's the, the purpose and the function of the book is Solomon writing to his son, Rehoboam, to try and impart wisdom to him. Last week, we looked at verse 7, the gateway to wisdom being the fear of the Lord. So we gave an entire session to that because it's so important and it undergirds so much of what we're going to be studying in the book from here forward. But here in verse 8 and following, we, we're going to see... Uh, just a, a clear shift in tone, and we're going to see that again. Don't don't forget chapter one to nine. We have these lectures of the father to the son. You know, from a literary perspective, if you recall our introduction a couple of weeks ago, we're going to see a very clear break from chapter uh, between chapter nine and ten. By the time we get to chapter ten and on, we're going to see the proverbs. Really, it's an anthology, a collection uh, of proverbs that are listed from there forward. But chapters 1 to 9 is a series of lectures. Well, the first major lecture uh, is, is starts right here in our text this morning, chapter 1 and verse 8, and it'll go through verse 19. And it, it does depend upon how you subdivide these lectures. Most scholars will come up with around 12 lectures or discourses that, uh, that you can subdivide chapters 1, and nine, one to 9 into. And again, there's some debate on that. Some will, you know, chron you know, they'll chronologically break it up a little differently. But this is how we're going to advance through it, is we're going to subdivide this section into 12 major chunks. This morning is chapter 1, verses 8 to 19, what you might call the associations of wisdom. Who do we associate with? Wise people need to be wise in who they associate with. But then we'll see from chapter 1, verse 20 to 32, we'll see the warning of wisdom. We'll see the introduction of Lady Wisdom where she gives a warning, an invitation for all to come and to hear her wisdom, but a warning for those who do not listen, those who reject uh, her wisdom. We'll see the pursuit of wisdom, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. How do we become wise individuals? How do we pursue wisdom, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9? Then the prophets of wisdom. If we are wise, what is the results of that? Uh, that's chapter 2, verses 10 to 22. And again, we'll rehearse this as we go, obviously, week to week. We'll also see chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, what I would call the promises of wisdom. It's kind of similar in thought flow to the previous section, uh, the benefits or the profits of wisdom. But there's very specific promises given to us in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And then we have a shorter section. Some will combine, you know, number 5 and 6 into one discourse. Uh, but we'll see the praise of wisdom. In, in chapter 3, verses 13 to 20, wisdom is likened to a number of different things, like the tree of life, for instance. Uh, it's a pretty picturesque uh, word image, and so we'll, we'll develop that when we get there. We'll see the practical appeal for wisdom in chapter 3, verse 21 to, 20, or 21 to 35. is like, again, it's, it's the idea is that if wisdom 
benefits you. There's a practical aspect to it. So again, don't forget the entirety of this, these first nine chapters is the father speaking to the son and his big point is to try and convince the son to be wise, to see the, the benefit of wisdom, to pursue becoming a wise person. So there's a personal appeal for wisdom, you might call it, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 27. That's really the entirety of chapter 27, or I'm sorry, 27 verses of chapter 4, where we see uh, just a, a personal appeal. Solomon is speaking to his son, saying, hey, I was taught by my father, and I'm benefiting from it, so now I'm trying to teach you as my son. Then we'll see the peril of adultery, chapter 5. The entirety of chapter 5 is devoted to that subject, as well as chapter 7. Uh, we'll see the peril of adultery and the ways of the seductress are, are going to be described in chapter 7. Chapter 6 is the admonitions of wisdom. We'll actually see a number of proverbs become introduced there where he you know, gives us some, uh, some pithy proverbs or some of them are longer where he's, he's going to give us five, six verses on a single thought unit. Uh, but he'll, he'll kind of give us a flavor of what's coming for the rest of the book in chapter 6. And then chapter 8 and 9, again, some will subdivide that, but chapters 8 and 9 go together, and it's, it's another, uh, it's, it's the words of Lady Wisdom as she is imploring us to, to listen carefully and, and to become wise. All right, so chapter 1 and chapters 8 and 9 serve as a bit of an incluso, right? Are you familiar with that term? I use it every once in a while. It's a literary term. Incluso, it's like a parentheses. It's where it's a literary device where a, a thought unit begins and ends with a similar idea in, in order to show you that it's bracketed off. Well, chapter 1 and chapters 8 and 9, you're going to see Lady Wisdom step forward, and she's going to speak. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week when we introduce her in chapter 1. But nonetheless, our focus this morning is chapter 1, verses 8 to 19, the associations of wisdom. And, and we're going to look at it in two big thoughts. First, we're going to see that we ought receive godly parental advice. That's verses 8 and 9. We ought receive godly parental advice, but we also ought reject godless peer advice. That's verses 10 to 19. We ought receive godly parental advice, but reject godless peer advice. All right, so let's begin with that first thought and read verses 8 and 9, okay? If you've got your Bible, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says this. My son, and many of these discourses, that's how we mark them off, is he introduces, and, and again, there's some overlap there, but he often will introduce a new discourse with that. My son, he's, he's addressing him. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and forsake not the law of your mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto your head and chains about your neck. Now, as we contemplate those two verses and the, the, the big idea of receiving godly parental advice, I want you to consider with me two big things. First, let's just discuss for a moment the, the guiding light of a good family, right? We have a father and a mother speaking to a son and how important of a dynamic that is throughout the book of Proverbs. So I want to contemplate that for just a moment, but then we'll see the garland of godly advice in verse 9. In other words, if you listen to wise counsel from godly parents, it will be an ornament of grace to your head and chains about your neck. Now, again, that's an old King James translation, right? We think chains about your neck. Does that mean like a ball and chain? No. Think necklace, right? The idea is it's something that's ornamental, that beautifies, that brings honor. It's not meant to be a bondage. Rather, it's the, the opposite. It's a blessing. But nonetheless, let's consider these two things about these verses before we, we move on to the actual advice itself that, he's, that they're granting in verses 10 and following. 
But first consider with me the guiding light of a good family. We see it here in verse 8, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Proverbs. Family is a very important topic in Proverbs, and we're not going to exhaust this topic this morning. We're, we're, we're going to introduce it, but we're going to see it over and over and over again throughout the book. In fact, the entire setting of the book of Proverbs, recall, is a father instructing his son. And so that helps us understand the importance of the family dynamic. The word son appears 44 times in the book, 15 times in chapters 1 to 7 alone. Now, the family is going to take a central role in the book of Proverbs. The purpose of it is to teach wisdom. Pop over just briefly to chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Let me reread this. Solomon will say in this passage, Hear, you children, the instruction of a father. Attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Forsake not my law, for I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. In other words, Solomon was taught by David, and now he's turning to teach his son Rehoboam. And this, these are just, again, samples of what we'll see throughout the, the book. But the family is to take the central role in teaching wisdom. Recall that this is something that God promised back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he, he required this, in fact, as a commandment, that uh, fathers in particular, but mothers and fathers, are both to be very consistent in teaching their children wisdom as well as, uh, you know, not just wisdom, but the law of God. Deuteronomy 6 is specifically talking about the law of God. We see elsewhere, for instance, like Psalm 78, we're not only to teach our children the law of God, but we're also to teach them the meaningful events of the past. Psalm 78 is, is a review of history so that our children would know the important things of the past that they need to know that shape their identity and their destiny. And so it's really an important idea. Um, and what we're going to see as the, the family takes this central role is that both mother and father cooperate in leading the home. We're going to see the book of Proverbs assumes this, that, and we're not going to go to all these references here this morning for sake of time. You can jot them down, or, and we will get through them uh, you know, uh, throughout our study. But we see in chapter 1, verse 8, note, notice both mother and father are mentioned. My son, hear the instruction of your father, forsake not the law of your mother. We just read chapter 4, verse 1, where he's describing children, listen or hear, hearken to the instruction of a father. We saw it again in chapter uh, 4, verse 3. We read that a moment ago. He says that, again, he's referencing both mother and father. In that verse, if you were to go through these remaining verses, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 13, chapter 15, 19, 20, 23, 27, 29, 28, 29, 30, 31, it's going to talk about this over and over and over and over again. The idea is a father and mother cooperate in leading the home and teaching their children. But if you were to zoom out, and, and this is, I'm just going to hit the high spots this morning. I'm going to introduce this idea to you. We're not going to look up all these references this morning because I want to save some of that for, for further uh, lectures where we devote several lectures to the topic of family in the book of Proverbs. But I want to introduce to you the just big Six big ideas that Proverbs is going to discuss regarding the home and the family. And I'm going to introduce them this morning so, you can, uh, so we can see how important of a subject it is, how it pertains to our particular text. But like I said, we will spend lectures in the future dedicating to these ideas. But the first big idea is that a cohesive family unit is a source of great blessedness. Proverbs were, will, will emphasize this over and over again. 
Uh, again, I, we won't go to all these, but Proverbs 10.1, 15.20, 20, uh, verse 7, 23, verse 15, 27, verse 11, 29, verse 17, 31, verse 28 are just a, a sample of how often the book of Proverbs is going to praise the blessedness of a cohesive family unit. Yet, that's a double-edged sword, because a dysfunctional home is a curse. Proverbs 10, verse 1, Proverbs 17, verse 25, 19, 13, verse 26, Proverbs 20, verse 20, and 28, 7. It's going to talk about this over and over again through the book. And we will go to all of those references and look them up, uh, you know, in a future lecture where we just think through that. But just recognize the book of Proverbs is going to praise a cohesive family unit, and yet it's going to announce that there's a curse uh, in a dysfunctional home. Second big idea that Proverbs is going to introduce to us concerning the family unit is that a cohesive family unit takes wisdom to build. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4 describes, in fact, let me, I, I just, ugh, there's so many good stuff, right? I'm trying to hit the high spots this morning, and we'll come back and look at them in more detail. But let me read that. Proverbs 23, verse, uh, 24, rather, verse 3 and 4 says, Through wisdom is a house builded. And by understanding, it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. In other words, it takes wisdom to build this cohesive family unit. And because of this, it's so important to God that he says in chapter 6, verses 19 to, or 16 to 19, it's the listing of the abominations, things that God absolutely hates. On the list is those who sow discord among brethren. In other words, when anything that erodes the family unit, God abhors it. He absolutely hates it. And so it's, it's important for us, again, the book of Proverbs is lifting it up. Look at the importance of a cohesive family unit. It takes wisdom to build. It's not going to happen automatically. It takes an enormous amount of effort and work and wisdom to build a cohesive family unit. But it's a great source of blessing. And God hates anything that erodes it. Third big idea is a cohesive family unit requires an understanding and submission to the roles of father, mother, and children. In other words, and this is not only inside the book of Proverbs, but all throughout the scripture. Let me just read that. Proverbs 30 and verse 17 says, The eye that mocks at his father and despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pluck, pluck it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Don't you love that verse? I was a junior camper. I think I was in like fourth or fifth grade. First time I heard that verse preached on. <laughs> Freaked me out, let me tell you. Uh, but the speaker got up and he says, all right, children, next time that you give that eye, you roll your eyes at your parents. He says, God says it's better that the raven and young eagles come and pluck it out and eat it. I was like, whoa, right? And then I had nightmares that night. <laughs> but uh, it makes a point, right? The whole idea is that, and, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it more when we get there, but it's actually alluding to the book of Deuteronomy, that a rebellious child, like a, a, a ridiculously rebellious child, according to the book of Proverbs, uh, it, it's warning that, hey, it will lead to the ravens eating out your eyes. Well, what is that a reference to? Actually, go back to Deuteronomy. It describes how a, a recklessly rebellious child would actually inherit the death penalty at times. And when that child was put to death, what happens to the body? They post it overnight, or not overnight, but through the day, and then they take it down before overnight. And what happens to that body? Right? Isn't that a pleasant thought? The birds of the air come and start feasting on the body. Okay, aren't you glad, right? Aren't you glad you came this morning? But so the point is, Proverbs 30 is warning us of that law in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Number four, a cohesive family unit serves as a locus or the center for instruction. We already read it a moment ago, but in Proverbs 4, verse 3 and 4, Solomon says, I learned from my father David, right? And he says, and now I'm trying to teach you. But it's also not only the locus for instruction, that the, the most important place a child is to receive instruction is from the home, right? Now we can have other institutions like the church or schools or things like that, but the primary uh, really locus or center of, of instruction and teaching for children, according to the scripture, it needs to be the home. But it's not only the place of instruction, but also the place to model right behavior. We'll see this over and over through the book, but... Uh, one of my favorite verses in Proverbs 23, I have 20 verse 7 on the screen, but 20, in chapter 23, you have one of my favorite verses on parenting anywhere in the scripture. The father says to the son, he says, son, give me your heart and let your eyes behold my ways. Like in, in one verse, I think if you were to pick one verse on parenting in all of the scripture, that's the one. I mean, it's just really profound. We'll talk much more about that as we work our way through. Fifth, uh, a cohesive family unit requires understanding and implementation of discipline and correction. I only give you one passage there, uh, but this is going to show up a dozen times, or maybe not quite a dozen, maybe eight or ten times throughout the book. It's going to talk about uh, the process of discipline and correction for our children. And in fact, I, I love, let me just read this one, because my parents taught me this at a very young age. <laughs> Proverbs 23, verse uh, 13 and 14, he says this, Withhold not correction from a child, for if you beat him, he will, with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> My parents loved that verse. And verse 14, he says, and if, uh, but he says, if you beat him with the rod, you'll deliver his soul from hell. Right? Man, there is so much truth to that verse that is just flatly denied in, in modernity, by the way. But nonetheless, we, we need to understand that. Proverbs is saying, hey, there's wisdom in this. Don't, don't miss this. But then the sixth big idea, and we'll come back and develop each of these in, in future sessions, but a cohesive family unit requires a warmth of relationship and genuine trust. There's that verse I was alluding to in chapter 23, verse 26. Let me just read that to us here quick. But that's the one that says, my son, give me your heart and let, my, let your eyes observe my ways. Right? Like I said, that's probably my favorite verse in all of the Bible on parenting. Uh, because it, it, it and, and I really want to come back and develop that idea, but a cohesive family unit to, to really de requires this warmth of relationship and genuine trust. We'll come back to this thought at the end of the hour today, uh, just briefly. But the idea is that, you know, we, we can't have only discipline without warmth of relationship. And because when you have that genuine trust, it draws the child to the home, if that makes sense, rather than repelling it from the home. So we'll talk about that more as we work our way through. But the point is, I just, and again, we, we don't have this time this morning to go through all of these references, but I just want you to see overall what we will be getting into as we think of the big picture through the book of Proverbs, that the family unit is a huge, huge subject of discussion. But go back to our text, Proverbs chapter 1, and notice that this, it begins in verse 8 with this, you know, introduction. My son, hear the instruction of your father, forsake not the law of your mother, right? And we just contemplated the importance of the family unit. But then he says in verse 9, for they shall be an ornament of grace to your head and chains about your neck. In other words, I want you to consider not only the, the guiding light of a good family, but the garland of godly advice, as I call it in verse 9. The idea here is that the words of the father and mother, which embody wisdom, right? That's what's being implied in the text can become a decorative wreath for the son's head or a chain or necklace 
uh, of, a, of an office. In other words, just as a champion is adored with a garland of victory, and a newly appointed official would often be given a chain uh, or you know that would go along, or a necklace that would go along with the vestments of his office, so too is the attentive son assured of prosperity and a stable life. And that's what's going, that's what's it's getting at here in verse 19, or excuse me, verse 9 rather, where it describes that it's an ornament of grace to your head. That's the idea of a garland of victory. That once you've run the race well and you are honored as being victorious, the, the honor is the garland placed upon the head. He says, if you are a wise child and listen to your parents' advice, then that advice will become a garland to your head. It will be a source of honor and blessing. You will live life uh, with success. And then, of course, it uses the idea of, of a chains about your neck. And again, that's an old King James translation, right? And we sometimes think chains about the neck is like, oh, ball and chain. No, no, no. The idea is that it's an ornamental necklace or the idea of a, a gold chain that represents the position of a high office, high status. That's the idea is you will go far in life if you listen well to your parents. That's, you know, that's what it's saying. Godly parental advice. So in other words, to restate verse nine, it's saying that wisdom is both beneficial and attractive. It brings both honor and recognition. When someone is wise and they live life with wisdom, they, they, there's a certain attractiveness to their life. We look at that and we say, man, they just got things figured out. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I want to do what they're doing. I want to be like that, right? And that's the idea is it's the garland of grace and the, the, the chain about their neck. Henry Bosch says this, he observes that, quote, many great men of the past have been richly blessed by what they learned at their mother's knee. He's talking specifically of mothers, but I think we'd apply it to parents in general. But he goes on to describe, consider Moses, Samuel, Timothy. Uh, sorry, it blipped on me. Consider Moses, Samuel, Timothy. The maternal care and godly influence experienced by these spiritual leaders bore rich fruit in their lives. He's just looking at biblical examples there where we can look at Moses, Samuel, Timothy, all of which were tutored by their mothers or grandmothers in the case of Timothy uh, that, were, that were, became great men. But Bosch also goes on to consider uh, church history. He says, think of Augustine. If you ever heard of Augustine's mother, she's a rather famous figure in church history uh, that prayed incessantly for her renegade, reckless son until he finally got converted and became one of the greatest you know, contributing c- contributors to, to Orthodox theology throughout church history. You got Augustine, John Newton, uh, the zealous Wesley brothers. You ever heard about uh, Susanna, right? Susanna Wesley, a famous mother through church history. Uh, he, he goes on to say their names would probably never have lighted the pages of history if it had not been for the godly women who raised them in homes where the law of love and Christian witness was their daily guide and inspiration, end quote. That's a, that's a helpful observation, but it's, it's very true. My, uh, just putting it a different way, and I don't know who first originated the quote. I'd have to go back and look it up. My, my college history prof, one of the smartest men I've ever met, and he, man, he, was a, he just knew history, you know, upside down and backwards and inside out, and it was uh, impressive and, and a joy just learning from him. But he used to always say that, and he would quote, and I forget who he was quoting. See, I should have been a better student and listened a little more carefully. But, but he used to always say that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You ever heard that? Right? 
It's and I forget who first quoted that or who you know where it originates from, but it is a powerful observation, right? The hand the rocks, the cradle rules the world. And there's so much truth to that. And he would always describe godly mothers uh, or even powerful personalities that may not have been godly, right? Like Emperor Nero had a crazy mom. Uh, She was anything but godly, but she did impact the world by raising Nero. (laughs) But anyways, the point is there's a lot of truth to that. And, and, but as we see, and again, the heading here is that we're to listen to godly parental advice, but there is such a thing as godless parental advice. Unfortunately, that happens. And it happens a lot, uh, as specifically as our society continues to disintegrate. Um, but the point is here that in the ideal situation, right, we have godly parents trying to give godly advice to their children. And that's what the book of Proverbs is, is, is heralding and, and showing us the blessedness of. But we also need to look at the flip side, okay? So that's verse 8 and 9. We need to listen to godly parental advice. But we also need to reject godless peer advice, verses 10 to 19. Let's read this section, and then we'll, we'll contemplate it together. Okay, verse 10. He says, My son, if sinners entice you, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us lurk privily or secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all uh, precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. And they lay uh, wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which takes away the life of the owners thereof. Pause there. Now, as you contemplate this advice, right, this is the first big piece of advice, discourse, if you will, in the book of Proverbs, is the son is being encouraged to avoid ungodly or godless peers. So the situation that's here being described, for instance, if we were to take our time and and just recreate in our minds or go back and read Book of Judges, uh, in fact, let me just read that real, real quickly. This is Japheth. Do you remember Japheth's origin story? Judges chapters one or chapter eleven, verses one to three. It says this. Judges eleven, verse uh, one says, "Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. Uh, and Gilead begat Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah." Right? In other words, he was kicked out of the family. He was disowned from the family because he was the son of a harlot. And the, uh, the other you know, rightful sons didn't want to share inheritance with him. So they kicked Jephthah out of the home. So what does he do? It says, well, they say unto him, you will not inherit in our father's house for you are the son of a strange woman. So verse three, so Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tov. And he says, there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and, he, and they went about with him. Now, if you were to continue reading, that idea of vain men gathering about Jephthah is what Jephthah became, really out of just a sense of survival at first, but he became the leader of a band of brigands, and they would raid and plunder the countryside. And it was not till later when we see the... uh, the, uh, the, the threat of the Ammonites come against the Jews that the Jews say, okay, 
Jeff, that we need somebody that's, you know, strong enough to lead our military. Would you please do it? Right. And then, and then you can keep reading and understand, you know, uh, flesh out the story of, of Jeff then. But the point is this band of, of brigands that Jephthah was leading is what most likely Solomon is talking about here in Proverbs chapter 1. In other words, it's the ancient equivalent to what you and I would consider a modern gang. Now, the mob mentality is, is evident here in our text when it says, let us, let us, let us, multiple times in the text. It's plural. Let us. In other words, it's a band of renegades that is, is really whipping up this mob mentality, which is a very dangerous thing, right? Can you imagine that? I mean, can you think back any time in recent history where we had crazy mobs going through the streets and burning down buildings? And you ever just, yeah, yeah, I know it's really hard to visualize this, but, but just put your thinking caps on and try to imagine that when this mob mentality whips people into a frenzy, what happens, and we've seen this multiple times throughout history, even recent history, but what the mob mentality is, is people that begin to think that we can sin with impunity as long as we are in large enough group. That if we have enough numbers, we can do whatever we want. We can rape, we can pillage, we can steal, we can burn buildings, we can level cities, and no one's going to stop us because there's enough of us. Well, that sort of mentality is absolutely destructive to a society as well as an individual. And that's what the book of Proverbs, right? This is a father speaking to his son, and he's saying, son, don't get sucked into this. Because often, and have we seen this in recent history? Yes, we have. But young men, in particular, are vulnerable to this. They're often bored by a sheltered life. Then they're enticed by the thrill, excitement, and adventure, and camaraderie that violence, money, and power in a gang sort of mentality can bring. There's great promises in this. There's this whole idea of a, a get-rich-quick sort of scheme that thuggery brings. But Proverbs says that this thuggery is stupid. A get-rich-quick scheme, especially at the expense of others, is foolish and wrong. So the Proverbs is this the father speaking to his son. Don't get sucked into this because it is really easy to, to be allured by easy money. Just take it from somebody who's worked for it, right? He's, and that idea of the mob gang mentality, he says, man, it is so dangerous. So that's the scene that you should be picturing in your head as it describes in verses 10 and following. The idea of, well, verse 11 in particular says, come with us, let us lay, wait for uh, blood, let us lurk privily or secretly for the innocent without cause. We'll swallow them up like the grave, right? Cast in with us so we all have one purse and the other idea is we pool our resources and now we, we uh, just go and steal from everybody else to benefit ourselves, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a gang. That's what's going on. Well, the father gives very clear advice. We see it in verse 10 and in verse 15. He says, do not consent. In verse 15, he says, my son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain your foot from their path. In other words, in the parental advice that is given to the son, we see a couple of big ideas. When he says, do not consent, do not walk in the way with them, he's trying to teach his son the concept of courage and a backbone, the ability to say no, particularly when the crowd is going along with it. This is one of the strongest, most important virtues that any of us can learn, is the ability to stand against the crowd, even if we're in the minority, 
to have the courage and the backbone to say, no, that's not right. I'm not going to do it. That's wrong. The ability to do that is it, it, it appears few and far between through the pages of history. How often people just want to, you know, go along to get along, as we say, right? It's like, I don't want to be the squeaky wheel. I don't want to raise my voice. I just want to fit into the crowd. And even if the crowd is, is in the wrong, clearly, well, I'm still going to do it because there's impunity in numbers, right? I can just, I'll just go along. And so the father is trying to teach his son. First big lesson, learn to say no. Learn to put your foot down and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Even if the crowd is trying to make you do it. Uh, and so this is an incredibly important piece of advice. And I think it's in, important and it, you know, it, it illustrates the point and the importance of it in that it's the first big lecture, right? That the father is trying to get across to his son. But he also tells us by this, this, this piece of advice also informs us that evil is a personal choice. He says, don't consent. In other words, when you do wrong, you chose to do wrong. The crowd may have influenced you, but you still chose. In other words, anytime you do evil, it is personal choice. But wrong associations do often ensnare us. In fact, this will be a huge theme in the book of Proverbs. Let me just read later, chapter 4, verse 14. Same thing, it says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, go not in the way of evil men. Let me just give you a few more references on that because Proverbs is going to have a lot to say about the company we keep. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 19, it's going to talk about this pretty extensively, that wisdom is actually going to keep us from the path of evil men and strange women. In verse, uh, it says in verse 12 to 19 of chapter 2. Chapter 13, verse 20, let me just read these real quick. Proverbs 13, 20 says, he that walks with, the, with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs 16, verse 29, let me read that one. A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him into a way that is not good. Chapter 20, verse 19, says this, he that goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, therefore meddle not with him that flatters with his lips. Don't meddle with him. Don't become a companion of fools. Chapter 24, verse 21. Let's read that quick. He says, My son, fear the, the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change. <laughs> right? He says, Why? Verse 22, For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin of them both. Now, there's people that can't make up their mind, that are indecisive, that are weak-willed, that will go along with the crowd. He says, Don't associate with them. You've probably heard this before, but some of the most important determinative factors for who we become is the books we read and the friends we have, as they say. And that was an old saying, because now no one reads books anymore, right? But you could still say, the stuff you watch or the media you ingest, right? What goes into your head and the people that you associate with are some of the most important determining factors of the people that you become. And so Proverbs is going to have a lot to say about this. But notice the reason the father gives the son. So back to chapter 1, look at verse 16 to 19. He gives him a reason why not to associate with these wicked individuals. 
He says, verse 16 and following, he says, For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, and they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which takes away the life of the owners thereof. In other words, verses 16 and 19, and 18 and 19 in particular, highlight how these sort of violent gang members are heading for an early grave. They try to trap others, yet in reality they only trap themselves. We'll see this theme come up many times in the book of Proverbs uh, and the scripture at large. Let me just read briefly Proverbs uh, 13, verse 21, that reiterates this. He says, it says, evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. Isn't that powerful? Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. In other words, as I said last time, and what I've said a couple of times, and we'll see it all the way through the book of Proverbs, is choices have consequences, right? Evil pursues sinners. It will catch up to you. And the idea of that gang mentality is it's not going to last. The way uh, Numbers 32 verse 23 puts it, this is Moses speaking, but he says, your sin, surely your sin will find you out. Remember that? Surely your sin will find you out. Another one of my favorite verses that my parents taught me at a very young age. Right? It was their favorite verse. <laughs> and the whole idea was that we, you know, they said, hey, we're not always going to catch when you do sinful things. But guess who's watching? God is watching and your sin will find you out. Evil pursues sinners. It will catch up. Again, uh, Paul makes a very similar point, different phraseology, but in Romans chapter 6, verse 21, he steps back with a rhetorical question, and he says, look at your life. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, look at your life. What fruit has your sin borne? He says, just look at your choices. When you made a stupid, sinful choice, he says, what was the result of that? Are you happy because of that? Right? Of course not. In other words, our sin will find us out. And that's what the, the again, this is another big theme that we'll come back to multiple times. But the father's trying to teach the son this big lesson that choices have consequences. And we need to learn to think past just immediate gratification in the moment, doing what we want, when we want, in the moment. He says, rather, we need to think beyond that. We need to think of where our choices are leading us. And that is one of the, really, the, the core components of true wisdom is the ability. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago, but that remember out of those 12 synonyms, right? Because you all have them at the tip of your tongue in your memory, right? <laughs> I couldn't probably list off all 12 off memory. It was a lot. But we have particularly one of my favorite words, the word prudence. Remember that? That is a foresight, the ability to think ahead, to see where your choices are leading you. That's one of the, the core components of wisdom. And so the, the father is trying to teach his son that sinning is essentially laying a trap for ourselves. It's laying a trap for ourselves. Temptation leads to entrapment, which leads to destruction. Paul will make a similar observation, trying to teach Timothy this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, he's talking in particular of the temptation of money in that passage, greed. But he says we, we are ensnared by it, and we go, we fall prey to destruction and perdition, he says, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. Pretty, some pretty strong advice. But as we look at this first lecture, notice a couple of big application points. And then, you know, with this, we'll wrap it up. 
Think first the big piece of advice that he's trying to get across to his son, that your direction is largely determined by your input. Your input is based upon who your friends are, what books, movies, music, media you ingest. Right? I made that point a moment ago, but that's really the big idea that the father's trying to get across to the son, is your direction in life is largely determined by your input. But your input's based on who your friends are, what books you read, movies you watch, music and media you ingest. And the reality is, garbage in, garbage out. Right? And it, it's, it's hugely important to be watchful about that. And this is important for us as parents. Because if the father is so concerned about this for his son, then we too need to be concerned about this for our children. What are we allowing them to watch, to think about? Uh, Again, we can't stop their thoughts, but we can influence those thoughts. And that's important for us to recognize. That's what the father's trying to do, is he's trying to warn the son about the company they keep to try and help them discern at a very early young age who good friends are and bad friends. I've had many lectures with my young children about this already. It's amazing. You know, especially when they start hitting, you know, a little bit older years, they start really thinking about their friends. They want to be around their friends. And yet not all friends are good influences. And learning to be a good influence rather than be influenced by a negative friend. So this is, this is a lecture that begins early in life and needs to be reiterated over and over. But let me show you the flip side of that real quick. Just one more you know, kind of applicational thought and then we'll wrap it up. But note that for children to follow this godly parental advice, they need to feel more welcomed and loved at home than with their peers. We're going to make a bigger deal of this later. But let me draw your attention back because, like I said, this is probably, if you were to ask me my favorite verse, my one primary verse on parenting, it would be Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. In other words, at the core of parenting, there's there's a lot of stuff that we need to do as parents, right? We need to instruct our children, discipline our children. We need to have these lecture moments. We need to have them learn life lessons, sometimes through consequence, etc. But I think it's so important when the father says to his son, son, give me your heart. In other words, does your child genuinely trust you? And if they don't, what are they going to do? They're going to go to their godless peers, their friends. They're going to listen to somebody else more than they listen to you. And there's go- they're obviously going to go through stages of that, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's a hard time. They're growing up and they're trying to figure out who am I going to listen to. But when there's a genuine trust, a warmth, a welcome in the home, they're drawn back. It's, it's really a powerful thing. And this idea of, of, of nurturing that sort of home, like I said, it takes enormous work and effort. He says, by wisdom, a house is built. This does not happen on accident. It doesn't happen intuitively. It takes an enormous amount of wisdom and effort. But largely in that, he says, son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. In other words, when we are parents who properly model what it should look like, then children are more apt to follow. It's when, and children are good at this. Teenagers are the best at this. They can sniff out a hypocrite from a mile away. You know what I'm saying? If there is any level of inconsistency, 
They, they see it and they exploit it. And when we, and again, we're not perfect. We need to learn to become very apologetic at times as parents to admit our own faults and our weaknesses. But the reality is if we're one thing in public, but something else in private, our kids have no respect for us. And they shouldn't have any respect for us because we're phonies. And if that's the case, we've lost all influence and they're going to go listen to somebody else or they're going to do their own thing. And yet, so, I mean, like I said, that one verse summary of the importance of parenting, he says, let your eyes observe my ways, but give me your heart. Trust me, watch me, follow me. And when you, when you have a parent like that, the influence is, is astounding. And I'm doing my best to try and model that. But by God's grace, I had parents like that. Were they perfect? By no means were they perfect. We could list their faults and their flaws, right? But, man, they were good at this. Winning our heart, saying we love you. We learned to trust them and then follow them. And they modeled right behavior before us. And they showed us what it looks like. And then we watched other people blow up their lives with stupid choices. And it was like, whoa, which one do we want to do? Want to follow this path? Or follow this path, right? That's what the book of Proverbs is trying to teach. All right? I'm out of time. So let's close in prayer. Next time, we'll come back. We'll pick it up in chapter 1, verse 20. We'll work our way to the end of the chapter where we'll see Lady Wisdom being introduced to us. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for your word and its truth. Lord, how important it is, how much it stings and hurts when we contemplate how inadequate we are as parents, as children, as grandparents. But Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you would help us to learn from the wisdom of Solomon, to not repeat his failures or the failures of Rehoboam and others, but that, Lord, we would look to you and your wisdom, that we would cling to your truth, that we would begin to, by your grace, live it out, so that we can make an impact on the next generation, that we can teach them these important things about who their friends are and how important it is to learn to say no, to go against the crowd when necessary. And yet, Lord, they will never have that sort of courage if we don't model it in front of them, to show them that sort of courage in our own lives. Where we model it and are warm and welcoming and they trust us and we live in a way that they are proud of. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn these lessons, to live them for your glory. So we pray your blessing in the weeks to come as we continue to look at these incredibly vital truths and apply them to our lives. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.